Good to see you. Uh, if you have your, you're going to need your Bible tonight. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I, I preached up in Port, and I, I actually got a call when I was with Doug and them. Uh, when was that? Tuesday? Tuesday. And this gentleman phones me from Port, and he said, uh, do you remember you preaching this Sunday? He, he phoned me like in January and said, can I preach sometime this year? I didn't write down the date. Luckily, he phoned me on Tuesday. So I really wanted to be here this morning. Don't don't doubt that, but I also felt bad, like he was expecting me to preach, and so, um, in any case, long story short, went to go preach there, wonderful little church, just filled with Africans, and it felt so good to tell them I'm the real African. <laughs> like, what? White people from Africa. So, um, I, I prepared this, he gave me the assignment to do a lesson on the first part of Jeremiah. And I thought, well, instead of just doing Acts tonight, because tomorrow I'm preaching in, in Salem, which is, which is two sermons I had to prepare since, since then, uh, Tuesday, um, I just didn't have time to also put Acts in um, for tonight. So I hope that's okay with you. We're going to look at something different. We're going to look at Jeremiah. I'm going to repeat just some of the things that I shared with this church then um, this morning. Um, and it, I must be honest with you, it, it, for me, this has been such an interesting study. It's just so important for me uh, to look at that. And I just want to remind you quickly, just to, I, I need to do this, these reminders now and then because God has allowed me to be a mouthpiece in this, in this church. And I think it's important to just remind you of how I think. This is how I think. The, the ancient Greeks said there's three key reasons. One of three reasons why you would give a speech. Number one, to know. Number two, to entertain. Or number three, to move. Now, which one of those three do you think a sermon needs to be? What about to entertain? Not really, right? What about just to, to know? In other words, to give knowledge. Well, there's a place for that, maybe a Bible study. But I don't believe that's the place of a sermon. Rather, the goal that I really want to focus on is to move, to help us shift from point A to B, to say, okay, when I preach, my goal is for life transformation, for mine, for yours, so we can become better disciples of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes we use knowledge and we use jokes and stuff to help people move and understand the text. I want you to remember that. That's the one thing. The other thing is this. It's my job to empty myself. It's your job to fill yourself. It's not my job to fill you. It's my job to empty myself. You decide what you do with it. Always remember that when I'm preaching. And I, I just also shared this with the, with the church there this morning because I didn't know them from a bar of soap and I wanted them to understand what they were going to get. The goal of looking at a text is to ask the question, how can this text change my life? When I'm finished reading this, how can I walk out of here and be more like Christ? How can this text change my perspective of life? Um, Jeremiah is, a, is, is, an, is an interesting book because it's loaded. Did you know? Who knew? Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Who knew that? I didn't know that until I did the study. It doesn't have the most chapters. It has the most words. I said to this guy this morning, I, you make a mistake. You know, you know what they always do when you go preach at another church? The guy says, um, take, take as much time as you want. Don't say that ever to a preacher. And you give me the book with the most words and say, take as much time as you want. Because what do preachers do? They multiply the words, right? So anyways, I'm not going to do that um, tonight. Um, so I, I want to spend the next 30 minutes looking at Jeremiah, this, this longest piece of um, writing that we have in the Bible um, 
And I just want to focus on sort of the first section, and I'm going to do that in, in, in a moment's time. But I thought what to do is, is to just go over the story quickly, and then you can go to chapter 52 if you want, if you've got your Bible with you, to go over the story, and then just to, then I'm going to go through the first seven chapters, just a few verses, boom, 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 seven points. All right. So the title of this lesson I have entitled, Start the Story with the End. Because as I'm busy thinking, okay, what am I going to say to these guys? What am I going to say about Jeremiah? I thought, well, when you tell the story, start with the end in mind. And it reminded me of Stephen Covey with his um, book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of those seven habits that successful people have in their lives is that they start what they do with the end in mind, which I think is a biblical principle. The Bible is filled with the concept of judgment. God is reminding us, live your life now, keeping the end in mind, knowing that one day you will be judged. The same thing can be seen in Ecclesiastes, perhaps the greatest piece of wisdom literature that there is in the Bible. And Solomon says the same thing, basically. You're going to die. Keep that in your mind as you live your life. All right, so we're going to start this story with the end. And I'm going to start reading for you from chapter 52, verse 12 to 14. We're going to start it there. On the 10th day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the house of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. What do you think this is referring to? I just read to you the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. About 140 years before this happened, the prophet Isaiah warned the people of Judah, said to them, listen, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and destroy the city. I'm going to bring a king that's going to destroy this place, a huge nation. Did they listen? Obviously not, right? What happened to Isaiah? He died. And then we read that there's about 30 years of silence where God did not speak at all. There were false prophets and people speaking nonsense, but God did not speak. And during that period of silence, something is brewing in the womb of a lady. About 10 years into it, in this period of silence, God saw an embryo in a mother's womb. The unshaped body of Jeremiah. And while Jeremiah was still in the embryo form in his mother's womb, God decided, I'm going to use you to be a mouthpiece for the people who are going to be taken into exile. For the people of Judah who will witness the destruction of Jerusalem. You're going to talk to these guys. That's your job. Jeremiah was therefore born, and 20 years later, about the age of 20, he was called. We read in the first chapter, in verse 9, that God, incredible text, God touched his lips. God touches Jeremiah's lips. How that happened, I don't know. And then he says, I've put my words in your mouth. So when you, when you hear what Jeremiah says, who is saying it? It's God. When Jeremiah spoke, it was God speaking. I'm very much aware as a mouthpiece for God myself. And we are all mouthpieces 
for God, that it's not the same as that of Jeremiah. Because there's a little bit of me sometimes in there, often in there. But Jeremiah, when he spoke, it was God's words. Now, here's the question. What were Jeremiah's words? And it's here that I think it's so important that we grasp the historical context. Once again, I can go into lots of knowledge stuff, and I can tell you about the kings of Judah, because he lived through five, uh, the reigns of five kings, the, the lives and the deaths of them. Um, but in summary, Judah was committing adultery against God, and Jeremiah was to tell the people that God had had enough. He's had enough. And he calls Israel, or Judah, sorry, Judah, he calls her a prostitute, an adulterous woman. Jeremiah had to tell the people that judgment is imminent, that God is raising up the Babylonian army to overthrow Judah. Now, in the beginning of Jeremiah's preaching, in the beginning, the first few chapters that I've been assigned to for today, he warns of judgment and destruction. But nearing the end of the book, guess what? What happens? He doesn't just preach judgment and destruction. He sees it happen in front of his eyes. Can you imagine that? You're going to burn. And then he sees the city burn. That was Jeremiah's job. So he witnessed, he witnessed the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem. He saw the temple burn. He saw his loved ones die. He saw people locked in cages and chains and being dragged off to Babylon. Isaiah and the other prophets, they predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity and the exile, for example. But Jeremiah not only predicted it, he witnessed it. He saw it with his own eyes. Therefore, many people call Jeremiah the 11th, God's 11th hour prophet. 12 o'clock's midnight. It's judgment. It's the end. You die. Jerusalem is taken over. The temple is burnt down. Just before I destroy Jerusalem, I'm going to pop in Jeremiah quickly. You go preach to these people. He came to tell Judah that the ship was sinking. That was his message. He came to tell Judah that the plane was going to crash. It was pretty cool today because we were in a, in a church that had a basement. I asked them, does it have ghosts? Because, I mean, I think a, a church basement must be scary. Must be somebody buried down there, or somebody must have been killed there, or something. And all the old church members come back to haunt, they stay in the basement. They had a church basement. And they and and, and this, the story goes of this um, of this basement that they had scriptures all over the walls. And a couple got married and they had the reception down in the church basement and they put the cake against the wall, but they and they took photos of the couple were cutting the cake, and it's a wonderful, beautiful, romantic situation. And but above the cake on the wall, coincidentally, there was a verse on the wall that said Matthew 3, verse 7, and it says the following: Flee from the wrath that is about to come. <laughs> now that is the message of Jeremiah. Flee from the wrath that is about to come. That summarizes it perfectly. And as I said, he witnessed this happen. This is what God wanted him to tell the people. Can you imagine? This is his message. The plane is going to crash. Now, here's the scary part. We just read. What do we read in chapter 52? Jerusalem was destroyed. What was Jeremiah's job? Tell them it's going to happen. 
Tell them to repent. Maybe I'll relent. Quick question. Did they listen? Obviously not. He preached for 40 years. Between 42 and 47 years. And nobody repented. Let that sink in. He's either a terrible preacher. Or those people are pathetic. And spiritually dead. God gave Jeremiah the assignment that nobody wanted. Go preach to people. Listen to this. Go preach to people that won't listen to you. And go preach for the rest of your life and they won't listen to you. Go preach. Would you do that? Go watch the death of your nation. Go preach until they die. Go preach until it burns. Until the city burns. You keep preaching. And that's all you have to do. I've been preaching for 15 years or 20 years. I don't know. Can't calculate now. I don't know if I'll continue preaching if nobody comes to Christ. And nobody listens. And nobody cares. I'll find that very, very hard. Extremely hard. So God says to him, go watch the death of your nation and keep on preaching. And on top of that, he says, you're not going to have a wife. You're not going to have kids. You're going to have no other job. You're going to have no house, really. You're going to have nothing. And the people you preach to, they're going to hate you. They're going to throw you in a pit. They're going to put you under house arrest. They're not going to listen to you and you're going to have no friends. You can go throughout the book of Jeremiah. It seems like he had maybe three friends and one of them was Baruch, who's the guy who writes this stuff down and He's really an employee. You can't count him as a friend. Here's a guy that's alone. He's preaching. He's got nothing. And the people don't listen. Now, go. Go, God says. And go tell people what they don't want to hear. Jeremiah, the word means to hurl. Like a, like a baseball, maybe. I don't know. To hurl. And that means either, I would say, that... He preaches a message of God hurling judgment onto Judah and the nations, or he is being hurled by God into the presence of people who will not listen to him. Either way, it's a very difficult, difficult job. And I ask the question, how big must the fire in your heart burn if you keep preaching even when nobody responds. How big is that fire burning? And Jeremiah explains that in chapter 20 verse 8 and 9. He says, The word of the Lord has brought me reproach all day long. But if I say that I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, indeed I cannot. For his word burns like a fire within my bones. I cannot contain it. He couldn't stop speaking. It was burning in his heart. Now, Jeremiah was at first a priest. He came from a priestly family. And if you look at Jewish history, look at Jewish life, it seemed like people liked the priests. Why did they like the priests? Because generally, they just took care of the sacrifices. You could go to a priest when you have sinned, and he helps you come right with God. And he's generally, he's, he's, got a, he's, he's sort of got a nice job, right? Like many preachers. Preachers. There are lots of preachers who like to preach what people want to hear. They just serve the people. But then God moved him, 
upgraded him from being a priest to become what? A prophet. And being a prophet is a very difficult thing because a prophet has to say what God says, even if the people don't like it. And there are few preachers of that around today who says it as it is, who's not conscious of people's feelings, but who says it as it is. And I'm not saying be brutally ugly. I'm just saying say it as, as God says it. That was Jeremiah's job. He didn't have a nice message. Oh, guys, you know what? You guys are wonderful. It's incredible. You guys are so cool. And everything you're doing is fine. God loves you, and He's going to bless this place. You guys will never go into exile. He would be lying. He came to tell them, you need to repent of your sins. You're acting like a prostitute, and this place is going to burn because of you. He was also not a politician. Because a politician also chooses his words very carefully, right? He wants to please the ears of the people who is listening to him to, in order to make them feel better. Everybody was talking about the wars, probably. What was in the newspapers, on the Facebook pages in Jeremiah's days? It was probably about the wars. It was about the false prophets who said lots of stuff. Who said, God is great. He loves you. You are great. And people were thinking about uh, Syria. They were thinking about Babylon and about Egypt. And they are talking about these things. And then Jeremiah comes in the middle of all of that and says, Hey guys, um, what about God? What about He's going to judge us? What about we need to get our act together? Um, in the midst of the political discussions and the peace uh, messages of the prophets, He comes up and He stands. And nobody likes Him. It, it reminds me very much of today. If we go into the newspapers now and the social media, what do we see? Oh, it's Ukraine and it's Russia and it's America and it's Korea. And then you have the prosperity preachers and the self-help gurus and the politicians and the yoga instructors. They say the world is great, that the state of the moral, morality in America is awesome, that the human race is flourishing, and that we are scientifically so advanced. We've evolved as a species to the extent that we understand so many more things than what we did 100 years ago. Life is incredible. The human race is advancing. It's becoming better. It's becoming better people. And there are very few people who actually stand up and say, um, whoa, it's a mess. It's a mess, and God will judge us. Now, let me be real with you. You know what I'm going to say now. Because I have to stop now and then, right, and take off the gloves. I, and I've said this to you. I'm shocked by America. And it takes, it takes somebody from outside... To come in, and, and you know, coming here to visit for a week doesn't reveal everything. Living here, you start seeing the reality. Interacting with people, you start seeing the reality of what is happening in this place. The moral decay in this country is indescribable. I think I told you, I, came from, I was in Zambia two months ago, three months ago. 15 years prison sentence for smoking marijuana in Zambia. Homosexuality is illegal. Same as in Uganda, they throw you into prison. I know friends who own drug rehabilitation centers in, in South Africa, and they're very clear. Marijuana, they call the, the substance that numbs the soul. They see it daily. It's a gateway drug. Well, then you come into America, you just go buy it on the corner. It's wonderful. It's right here. The rest of the world doesn't think like America. America's in a different place. And it's destroying families. 
Honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to fight for what's right and true, but we have to be honest about this. It's a mess. It causes great immorality, it destroys people's lives. I'm just using this as like sort of examples. I met a very interesting guy the other day from, from Serbia, professional tennis player, Portland University. He tells me in Eastern Europe, it's not like it is here. In Eastern Europe, this transgenderism is nonsense. They don't tolerate it there. It's, it's America that's very different. Most young people I meet cannot even have a spiritual conversation with me. They are spiritually blind. And many of them are in rebellion. They don't know how to get their lives in order. Because they've either been, they've got no idea who God is, or they've been wrecked by a broken family. They are clueless. So I meet lots of people who can't rationally talk about God. I meet people in the church that fob off the requirements of the Word of God. And I spoke about this two weeks ago. It's like, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but ah, I'm going to do that. It's crazy. 90% of people I meet, and I'm willing to write this down on paper, 90% of people I meet come from broken families. Marriages are fractured. Families are broken. And I am frustrated. Why did I bring my family to this place? Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The whole world is going to grow cold, ladies and gentlemen. I just think it started here before some of the other places. But then, I receive a call from a man named Jonathan Turner on Tuesday. And he says to me, hey, you're preaching Sunday, brother, and you're preaching on Jeremiah. And I'm like, okay, let me go read the book. So I started studying this man, and I quickly learned, listen carefully, faithfulness and, and fruitfulness don't always go together. In other words, even though the society is so hard and we can't penetrate it, and it's evil and it's wicked and we don't know how to connect with it, it doesn't mean that we've got to stop preaching and it doesn't mean that we are not doing the right thing. We've got to keep doing it even if nobody listens. We've got to keep doing it even though people's hearts are cold. We've got to keep doing it. Sometimes we are called to make out evil only because we cannot defeat it. Jeremiah couldn't defeat the evil of Judea. And that was hard for me here. I thought, well, we, oh, you know, God can use me to eat a dent into Satan's kingdom. Who am I? I'm nothing. These people, God needs to take over here. Perhaps, you know, we can't change the moral decay of society, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be preaching. Sometimes success means doing what you know is right, even when what you are doing doesn't appear to work. Jeremiah is not only called the 11th hour prophet, he's also called the weeping prophet. He preaches fire and brimstone. He prophesies the destruction of his home and his people. He watches this happen with his own eyes. He is the last man standing on the sinking ship. Judah is filled with sin, but Jeremiah... He isn't angry with the people. What is he doing? He's crying. In actual fact, 
His sadness of seeing the sin of his own people that leads to their destruction is encapsulated in another book that he wrote. Do you know what other book Jeremiah wrote? Lamentations. It's a whole book about crying. Jeremiah looks at the sin of his nation. And he's not angry at them. He doesn't shout at them. He doesn't throw them with hand grenades. Want to punch them. What does he do? He pulls into a heap and he cries. And he writes down his lament on paper. Because he feels for them. Jeremiah repeats the destruction of Isaiah, but he's far more emotional. The end of Jeremiah sounds hard, but the beginning sounds broken. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? What did they say? Some say Elijah. And some say who? Jeremiah. There were a group of people who looked at Jesus and said, well, if I've got to think about which Old Testament prophet you look like, they said, you look like Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah is this beautiful image of a person who speaks the truth with fire and brimstone and at the same time cries for the same people he's preaching at. Jesus did that. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He called the people of Jerusalem little chicklets. He cares about them. He cries over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her little babies. So his judgment was matched by his compassion and care and love. Jeremiah had such a difficult time because he loved the people that he had to bring this terrible message to. Gloves was on. Gloves was on. I took them off. I put them back on again. I'm taking them off again. Okay. So. So I see what's happening. And I've been frustrated. And I've been, I've been angry. I've been angry at the disobedience I've seen in some Christians. I've been angry with the fact that people have been Christians for 40 years and they still don't know how to teach somebody else the gospel. I've been angry at the fact that I've met Christians whose marriages look worse than people in the world. I've been angry at the LGBTQ people who are willing and wanting to teach my boys that they can be girls if they want to be. Angry at this government who threw God out of schools, not understanding that that is the thing that's eventually going to lead to the destruction of this society. Makes me angry. But then on Tuesday, I received a call from a guy named Jonathan Turner. And he said to me, Dude, go study the book of Jeremiah and come teach us about it. And so I did. I went and I read the book, and I studied it, and I looked, and I learned a lot of stuff. I've learned from the prophet. When people do evil, my first response shouldn't be anger, but pain and care and concern. Jeremiah spent more time crying than yelling. Some of us 
and I put myself first in the line here. We are agitated and angered by some of the things going on in this country. We are angry at what we see in social media, what we see the politicians do, and the policies that are passed. We are angry. We need to work on that. I'm the first guy that needs to work on that. I'm angry at the moral decay. That's not what Jeremiah did. And I'm going to tell you in a moment's time why. It's going to help us on this. We're supposed to be hurting. Maybe I can get more done for God with a broken heart instead of an angry voice. Those people out there who are being led and worked and operated by Satan, do you think that they change their minds when we're angry at them? It just fuels the fire. When you can see the sin in other people and you're not mad at them, but you hurt for them, they can detect the love of God in you. A quote that I found once, it says, Nobody has a right to preach about hell who doesn't first weep over it. That's what I wanted you to know about Jeremiah. Now, if you want, you can turn with me to chapter 1. And we're going to read just a few verses. And we're going to go quickly through this. In each chapter, I'll just read a verse or two. And then just give you a one-liner to take home for tonight. Chapter 1, verse 17 to 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. My first point is this. Stand up and speak, even if no one listens. Speak God's truth with boldness. Don't ever become a silent disciple of Jesus. There are two key reasons why Christians generally keep quiet and don't want to speak up. Number one, fear of rejection. Jeremiah didn't have that option. Number two, they weren't listening anyway, so why bother? Jeremiah struggled with that too. My answer is this. Fear God, not people. God will judge those who don't listen, but He will also judge those who don't speak. Tasting food is great. Kissing your wife is great too. Hey, brother. You better say yes. She's sitting right next to you. Talking about you, Doug. No, I'm joking. Talking about you, brother. You can, you can, you can use your lips for all kinds of wonderful things, but let me tell you this. There's nothing better that you can do with your lips than speak up for God. For love in this broken world. Let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. There's the sin. They followed worthless idols. Verse 27. They say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Wow, I'm just going to read verse 28. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. 
For Judah, I have as many gods as you have towns. Verse 32. Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride for her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. The point I'd like to bring out here, and I've sh shared this with you before, just share it again. Don't treat God like an ATM. That's what they did. These Jews did so much wrong, they gave their love and allegiance to fake gods. But when they needed something, who did they go to? They didn't go to the fake gods. Then they go to Yahweh. They go back to the temple. I see it all the time. People's spiritual lives are weak when they have money, for example. But when the business runs aground and life gets tough, then they run back to church. Never use God for stuff. Honor Him. Chapter 3, verse 10. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. Here's my third point for you tonight. We get the best of God when He gets the best of us. We get the best of God when He gets the best of us. Here God depicts Judah as a prostitute. She sleeps around with every man that she meets. In verse 3b, he says, he says to her, Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. She feels no shame for sleeping around with other gods. She doesn't blush. But she seems to come back to God. But she doesn't come back to God with a whole heart. She comes back under pretense. She fakes. She makes as if she loves him. But she doesn't. Ladies and gentlemen, God sees through pretension. He knows you. He will not bless you. He will not honor you if you come to Him with half your heart. Come with all of it. And heaven will open itself for you. Chapter 4, verse 22. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I've met a few of these. How does Jeremiah respond to people like this? Go back two verses, verse 19. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. I'm going to go back to the point that I made earlier. Let me just first point this out. The point here is this. Mourning over sinners is a mark of a true saint. Mourning over sinners is a mark of a true saint. This for me, ladies and gentlemen, this is for me a battle. Because I tend to look down on and despise fools that reject God. I'm thinking in my head. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to be very vulnerable. I think in my head, you stupid person. You retard. Can you be so stupid to do that? To think like that? To do that to your body? To do that to your wife? To do that to yourself? How dumb can you be? I want to hit you. Maybe you'll wake up. This is the sinful me. I get angry at fools. But what does Jeremiah do? He's in anguish. His heart is hurting. And I ask myself, why? 
Why don't I feel the same way about fools? What's the difference between me and Jeremiah? The answer is in the text, by the way, in verse 19. You can take a chance if you want to. Right there at the end. The text says, For I've heard the sound of the trumpet, I've heard the battle cry. Let me explain that. Jeremiah vividly, through God, sees himself the vision of what is coming. Jeremiah saw what is going to happen in Jerusalem before it happened. He's living out God's judgment in his heart and mind before it happens. He has already heard the battle cry. He has seen the fire, heard the screams of those dying, and he's already smelled death. That's why he's mourning, because he understood, you guys don't know what's coming for you. You're messing with God. He's going to burn this place. The Babylon guys, they're going to take your children captive. You're going to be taken to a foreign land. Your places will be taken from you. Your house will be burned down. He can see this because he's connected to God. God allows him to envision this. That's why he's crying because he knows what's going to happen to them. And that is what you and I lack. The vision to fully understand and believe that the family members that we have, that we love, that are in sin are actually going to go to hell. Because if we did, if we understood this fully, we would be mourning for them instead of being angry with them. Oh my goodness. Do you know how big and powerful God is? Do you understand that He's a consuming fire? That He will swallow you up and spit you out? He will beat you up. He will bring you down on your knees. And you keep on going in the sin. Please don't do that. There's a difference between that and saying, you fool, idiot. I repent tonight. I do. I'm going to change my heart about this. Chapter 5. Verse 1. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through the squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. Very easy. I will forgive the city. So Jeremiah packs on, he's got his nice um, metal shoes and his hunting gear and nice comfortable walking stick. He says, okay, I'm going to walk in Jerusalem. I'm going to go find some righteous people. I'm going to find one person that seeks the truth and deals honestly. Did he find one? Because God says, if you find one, I will forgive the city. Did he find one? Well, clearly, according to chapter 52, he did not. Because God did not forgive that city. He destroyed it. But anyways, the next verse says, Jeremiah goes and he finds some people. He starts off with who? He starts off with the poor people. I don't know why he went to the peasants and poor people first, but that's his first stop. And he talks about them, verse 4 to 5. I thought, these are only the poor. They are foolish. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. Okay, so I'm not going to bother with the poor people. Clearly, none of these poor people understand God. So where does he go next? Well, let me go to the leaders of Israel. 
Let me go talk to the guys at the top. I've spoken to the guys at the bottom. Let me go search the guys at the top. Verse 5. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Jeremiah finds himself in a predicament. When he goes low, nobody respects God. When he goes high, nobody respects God. It's only him out of the whole Jerusalem. And then in verse 30 and 31, he says, A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But he closes off the chapter with a question. What will you do in the end? Brings me to my fifth point. In everything you pursue, ask yourself the question, will I still love this in the end? Jeremiah is challenged to go through the whole city. He goes to the poor and then to the leaders. Nobody honors God. He concludes the chapter with prophets lying and priests doing what they want and the people love it. What happened here? The prophets said what the people wanted to hear and not what God said. The priests did what they wanted and not what God wanted. And the people loved it because they were allowed to do what they wanted. You see, the prophets were supposed to say what God says and the priests were supposed to enforce what God said, but neither did it. But the people were happy and that's all that matters. This is dangerous. If we do everything in the church so that everybody is happy, we might as well close the doors. We might as well. Because it's going to be a mess. We are not here to do, to say, to experience what makes everybody happy. What are we here to do, ladies and gentlemen? We are here to make our God happy, to give Him honor, praise, and glory, and to offer our lives up to Him. Nobody else. Very dangerous. But in Judah's days, no, that was the norm. Keep the people happy. Jeremiah says, that's fine. You guys want to do what you want. That's fine. Question is this. What will you do in the end? Because in the end, you'll be in front of God. You'll stand in front of God. So why not come in front of Him now, do His will, and you'll be fine in the end. You can't live a different life now, and when you get to Him, suddenly you want to change things. It's not going to work. Because He sees through that. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. Verse 14. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. My point here is this. It's great if the word of God hurts you. It's great if the word of God hurts you. And I know sometimes, and sometimes I need to tone it down. Sometimes when you come to church, probably you hear stuff and you're like, oh, it's such uncomfortable stuff to you. And sometimes it's me speaking. But whenever it's God speaking, take it on the chin. Eat it like a man. Let it cut you to heart. If it's true, let it cut you. And let it change you. It doesn't help to come to church and expect to hear what we want to hear. We should come to church expecting to hear what we need to hear. And I'll try my best to do that. And whoever's the mouthpiece here on a given day, it should be their goal to, 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 to preach God's word. Even if it hurts. And in your personal time, read the uncomfortable stuff. 
Don't pick, pick the book on the shelf that you would like to, that can soothe what you already feel. Pick the uncomfortable stuff. And the best way to read is this. Read the Bible. Do you know why? Because the Bible doesn't care about your feelings. The Bible wasn't written to a guy in the 20, uh, written by, by a guy in the 21st century designed to sell books. Right? It was written by the Spirit of God to shape your heart. Read the text. Get into it so it can change your life. Don't just read the neat self-help, Jeremiah 29, 11 day pieces of books. I don't know if you know, but you, you guys know that that's the famous verse across the world of all the shallow Christians. Oh, what's your favorite verse? Jeremiah 29, 11. Five plans for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a future and to give you hope. And you ask the same person, do you even know what Jeremiah 29 is actually about? Who was that said to? What was the situation? And do you believe it's applicable to you? I'm not going to go into those details, but go do the study yourself. It's got nothing to do with you, Susie. The Bible will cut you open so some pus can come out. The dirt can come out. Look at what the priests did. We read in verse 14. What did they do? The people have wounds. Why do they have wounds? Because of their sin. And what do the priests do? Instead of saying to them, Hey man, you guys are sinning. That's why you hurt. Let me, let me open up this womb so that the pus can come out. Let me put some disinfectant in and clean it up. No, what does the priest do? Ah, it's okay, man. Just smash a plaster on top of that. Let's just cover it up. That's what you do if you only read stuff that makes you feel good. And you don't deal with what the text says and allow it to cut your own heart. Let it in. Sharpen that knife. Heat it up so it can clean you out. Chapter 7. I don't have a verse there for us to read. If you want to, you can close your Bible. Please go read Jeremiah in your own time. But there's one sentence I'd like to give you from uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is a very interesting sermon of Jeremiah. He's in the temple in Jerusalem, busy preaching. And I don't know if it's his own notes that he wrote it, or Baruch was recording while he was speaking, but he preaches there. And just one point from me. And it's for all of us. Let the reality of the coming wrath of God sink in. Let it sink in. There's going to come a day where God is going to judge the nations. And He's going to judge America too. And He's going to judge South Africa. And I think He's already. He's going to judge China. And He's going to judge Russia. And He's going to judge Susie, Joseph, Charlie, Michiel, everybody, individually. It's going to happen. Let it sink in. I want to give you a summary of what he says in chapter 7. God is saying, I've been watching you. He says to the Judeans, the Jews, you live and act like the godless. You worship Baal out there. And then you come into this temple to come and worship me. Go look at Shiloh. Shiloh was in the northern ten tribes. What happened to the northern ten tribes, ladies and gentlemen? They were destroyed by who? By the Assyrians. And so he says in chapter 7, he says, they did the same thing. Shiloh was the place where my name was first. Remember the tabernacle was set up there? I was there first, God says. 
What happened to that place? It's destroyed. It's laid waste by the Assyrians. And I'm telling you now, the same thing's going to happen here. At this temple. I see what you are doing. I see you. You send your children out to go gather wood. The fathers, they make the fire. And the mothers, they are busy kneading the dough to bake a cake to the queen of heaven. To honor foreign gods. I see you. Therefore know this. This place will burn. You do things that my mind cannot even imagine. Can you believe God says something like that? I never thought there's anything that God could not imagine. Surely the God of heaven and earth can do everything. Well, it's not true. There's one thing He can't do. There's certain evil He cannot even imagine. Can you imagine one day, let's say God sleeps, He wakes up, He looks down to Judea and He says, What? I can't believe you're doing that. I've never, I've never even imagined a human can do that. You know what it was? Sacrificing your children in the fire to a God that doesn't exist. And he talks about the valley of Ben-Hinnom. You remember what the valley of Ben-Hinnom was, right? It's that valley of, it's the sewage pit of Jerusalem, where we get the Greek word Gehenna from, that Jesus uses us to describe hell. So he talks about the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he says, it's going to worse. I'm going to give a new name to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. I'm going to give a new name to the valley, the place called hell, essentially. It's going to be called the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter. The carcasses of the people will become food for birds and wild animals, and there will be no one to chase these animals away. The sounds of joy, gladness, bride, and groom will disappear from this land. And the bones of the royalty, the priests and the prophets, will be dry and exposed on bare land in front of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the very thing that you guys have worshipped. What he's essentially saying is what is coming is worse than hell to these people. Ladies and gentlemen, let me, let me end here. I am not Jeremiah. God did not touch my mouth. But as I read scripture and I look at where we live and the people who surround us, it looks very much like the rebellious prostitute of Judah. Is our society sinking? Is the plane going to crash? Well, it really... There are certain elements that seems to point in that direction. And I'm going to give you one key reason why. You know, and I'll, I'll give you an example. And I'm the last guy. This is just me speaking, by the way. I don't, I'm too lazy to get on the chair. Me. Opinion. Right? Myself and Alfredo went to um, Thailand. Do you know why it's called Thailand? Anybody? People got big thighs. Thailand. I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. Uh, we were there in 2016, I think, 15, 2017. Do you guys know what happened there in 2004? So we went, we went to Phuket, one of the islands, incredible island, and um, there's a road called Bangla Road. It is perhaps one of the most immoral places on planet Earth. We're busy eating something at a restaurant, in, open in the street. Eating at a restaurant, having a meal. Six o'clock hits. We've got a waitress. She's working. She's giving us food. And we're sitting eating something. And six o'clock hits. Waiter leaves. She comes back. She's naked. 
like what? The whole road. When six o'clock hits, all the restaurants turn into strip clubs. It's like, what? I look on the road, there are families walking with their little kids in this immoral place. On the mountain, they've got a big Buddha statue. Everyone wants to go see the big Buddha. So we go up with our little scooter because we rented a scooter. We get up there. They won't allow us into the temple unless Alfreda's shoulders are covered. I think, what ridiculous is this? The people are naked down in the valley, and when they get to your Buddha up here, they must cover their shoulders. What a ridiculous island contradiction is this? A godless society. And the people told us there, because what happened in 2004 is one of the biggest tsunamis that's ever hit place, a place. You can go check that out. Thousands of people died. We watched videos about how the tsunami hit that island, Phuket Island, that for weeks afterwards, they had thousands of bodies coming out weeks later, coming from the ocean onto the land. There's an island, it's called Pipi Island, we went to go visit it. We saw some of the stories of people that left in the morning, they left their children in the chalet, they didn't want to go out and dive. So they went out in a boat and they took a dive to watch some fish when they got back to the island. Guess what? It was gone, wiped out. The children were gone. The tsunami went over the whole island. That, I believe, my opinion, is the judgment of God on extreme immorality. Because there's two types of evil in the world. There's moral evil and then there's Natural evil. And I believe natural evil comes from God. That's when God sends these destructive forces of nature to discipline places and human races. So we've got to be very careful. And we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our society. Because one of the key dangerous points for me about American society is this. And it, thinks, it looks like things might be going in a good direction. Is this. And we've spoken about this before. Every time. Every time children are involved, we've got to be careful. Because it was Pharaoh who killed children when he wanted Moses gone. It was Herod the Great who wanted children dead when Jesus was to be born. The Canaanites offered their children to, what was the name of the God, do you remember? Molech, the bronze statue burning with fire. And people would come and bring their babies and put it on their hands so that they burn to death, sacrifice their babies. That is, that is what God is talking about here through Jeremiah. You're killing children. And we spoke about the furnace in the UK, right? Where they took aborted babies and threw their body parts into the furnace to heat the hospital. It's the same thing. Burning babies. Killing babies. Invites the damnation and the destruction of God. Now... What do we do about this? Well, there's not much we can do. Except praying and continuing to preach. And here's the key. Not being angry. But weeping. Weeping. Because that person, that politician who stands up there and says yes to killing babies. That person is going to experience the wrath of God in ways that you cannot imagine. And you don't want to see that. It's going to be excruciating. And we're supposed to feel in our hearts pain for what they will experience when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the wrath of God is coming.
I don't want us to fear because some people fear. Oh, America is going to come to you know there's going to be the uh, you know it's going to be nuclear war. It's thrown in America. Well, it does not matter. Don't ever fear the future. We don't have to. There's only one thing in the universe we have to fear, and what is that? God. You fear God, you don't have to fear the future. If you don't fear God, fear the future. Because your end is coming. That's what I had from Jeremiah. Let's pray about these things, and then we can start our week and a holiday tomorrow. Goodness gracious, like preach like for 40 minutes. I'm sorry, guys.